With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Book 4, Chapter 5, Part C. Of Bounties. Digression Concerning the Corn Trade and Corn Laws. I cannot conclude this chapter concerning bounties without observing that the praises which have been bestowed upon the law which establishes the bounty upon the exportation of corn, and upon that system of regulations which is connected with it, are altogether unmerited. A particular examination of the nature of the corn trade, and of the principal British laws which relate to it, will sufficiently demonstrate the truth of this assertion. The great importance of this subject must justify the length of the digression. The trade of the corn merchant is composed of four different branches, which, though they may sometimes be all carried on by the same person, are, in their own nature, four separate and distinct trades. These are, first, the trade of the inland dealer, secondly, that of the merchant importer for home consumption, thirdly, that of the merchant exporter of home produce for foreign consumption, and, fourthly, that of the merchant carrier, or of the importer of corn, in order to export it again. 1. The interest of the inland dealer, and that of the great body of the people, how opposite soever they may at first appear, are, even in years of the greatest scarcity, exactly the same. It is his interest to raise the price of his corn as high as the real scarcity of the season requires, and it can never be his interest to raise it higher. By raising the price, he discourages the consumption, and puts everybody, more or less, but particularly the inferior ranks of people, upon thrift and good management. If, by raising it too high, he discourages the consumption so much that the supply of the season is likely to go beyond the consumption of the season, and to last for some time after the next crop begins to come in, he runs the hazard, not only of losing a considerable part of his corn by natural causes, but of being obliged to sell what remains of it for much less than what he might have had for it several months before. If, by not raising the price high enough, he discourages the consumption so little that the supply of the season is likely to fall short of the consumption of the season, he not only loses a part of the profit which he might otherwise have made, but he exposes the people to suffer before the end of the season, instead of the hardships of a dearth, the dreadful horrors of a famine. It is the interest of the people that their daily, weekly, and monthly consumption should be proportioned as exactly as possible to the supply of the season. The interest of the inland corn dealer is the same. By supplying them, as nearly as he can judge, in this proportion, he is likely to sell all his corn for the highest price and with the greatest profit, 
and his knowledge of the state of the crop and of his daily, weekly, and monthly sales enables him to judge, with more or less accuracy, how far they really are supplied in this manner. Without intending the interest of the people, he is necessarily led, by a regard to his own interest, to treat them, even in years of scarcity, pretty much in the same manner as the prudent master of a vessel is sometimes obliged to treat his crew. When he foresees that provisions are likely to run short, he puts them on short allowance. Though from excess of caution he should sometimes do this without any real necessity, yet all the inconveniencies which his crew can thereby suffer are inconsiderable, in comparison of the danger, misery, and ruin to which they might sometimes be exposed by a less provident conduct. Though, from excess of avarice, in the same manner, the inland corn merchant should sometimes raise the price of his corn somewhat higher than the scarcity of the season requires, yet all the inconveniencies which the people can suffer from this conduct, which effectually secures them from a famine in the end of the season, are inconsiderable, in comparison of what they might have been exposed to by a more liberal way of dealing in the beginning of it. The corn merchant himself is likely to suffer the most by this excess of avarice, not only from the indignation which it generally excites against him but though he should escape the effects of this indignation from the quantity of corn which it necessarily leaves upon his hands in the end of the season and which if the next season happens to prove favourable he must always sell for a much lower price than he might otherwise have had were it possible, indeed, for one great company of merchants to possess themselves of the whole crop of an extensive country, it might perhaps be their interest to deal with it, as the Dutch are said to do with the spiceries of the Moluccas, to destroy or throw away a considerable part of it, in order to keep up the price of the rest. But it is scarce possible, even by the violence of law, to establish such an extensive monopoly with regard to corn and wherever the law leaves the trade free, it is of all commodities the least liable to be engrossed or monopolized by the force of a few large capitals, which buy up the greater part of it. Not only its value far exceeds what the capitals of a few private men are capable of purchasing, but, supposing they were capable of purchasing it, the manner in which it is produced renders this purchase altogether impracticable. As, in every civilized country, it is the commodity of which the annual consumption is the greatest, so a greater quantity of industry is annually employed in producing corn than in producing any other commodity. When it first comes from the ground, too, it is necessarily divided among a greater number of owners than any other commodity. And these owners can never be collected into one place, like a number of independent manufacturers, but are necessarily scattered through all the different corners of the country. These first owners either immediately supply the consumers in their own neighborhood, or they supply other inland dealers, who supply those consumers. The inland dealers in corn, therefore, including both the farmer and the baker, are necessarily more numerous than the dealers in any other commodity, and their dispersed situation renders it altogether impossible for them to enter into any general combination. If, in a year of scarcity, therefore, any of them should find that he had a good deal more corn upon hand than, at the current price, he could hope to dispose of before the end of the season, he would never think of keeping up this price to his own loss, and to the sole benefit of his rivals and competitors, but would immediately lower it in order to get rid of his corn before the new crop began to come in. The same motives, 
the same interests which would thus regulate the conduct of any one dealer would regulate that of every other and oblige them all in general to sell their corn at the price which according to the best of their judgment was most suitable to the scarcity or plenty of the season whoever examines with attention the history of the dearths and famines which have afflicted any part of europe during either the course of the present or that of the two preceding centuries of several of which we have pretty exact accounts will find i believe that a dearth never has arisen from any combination among the inland dealers in corn nor from any other cause but a real scarcity occasioned sometimes perhaps and in some particular places by the waste of war but in by far the greatest number of cases by the fault of the seasons and that a famine has never arisen from any other cause but the violence of government attempting by improper means to remedy the inconveniencies of a dearth in an extensive corn country between all the different parts of which there is a free commerce and communication the scarcity occasioned by the most unfavorable seasons can never be so great as to produce a famine and the scantiest crop if managed with frugality and economy will maintain through the year the same number of people that are commonly fed in a more affluent manner by one of moderate plenty the seasons most unfavorable to the crop are those of excessive drought or excessive rain but as corn grows equally upon high and low lands upon grounds that are disposed to be too wet and upon those that are disposed to be too dry either the drought or the rain which is hurtful to one part of the country is favorable to another and though both in the wet and in the dry season the crop is a good deal less than in one more properly tempered yet in both what is lost in one part of the country is in some measure compensated by what is gained in the other in rice countries where the crop not only requires a very moist soil but where in a certain period of its growing it must be laid under water the effects of a drought are much more dismal even in such countries however the drought is perhaps scarce ever so universal as necessarily to occasion a famine if the government would allow free trade the drought in bengal a few years ago might probably have occasioned a very great dearth some improper regulations some injudicious restraints imposed by the servants of the east india company upon the rice trade contributed perhaps to turn that dearth into a famine when the government in order to remedy the inconveniencies of a dearth orders all the dealers to sell their corn at what it supposes a reasonable price it either hinders them from bringing it to market which may sometimes produce a famine even in the beginning of the season or if they bring it thither it enables the people and thereby encourages them to consume it so fast as must necessarily produce a famine before the end of the season the unlimited unrestrained freedom of the corn trade as it is the only effectual preventative of the miseries of a famine so it is the best palliative of the inconveniencies of a dearth for the inconveniencies of a real scarcity cannot be remedied they can only be palliated no trade deserves more the full protection of the law and no trade requires it so much because no trade is so much exposed to popular odium in years of scarcity the inferior ranks of people impute their distress to the avarice of the corn merchant who becomes the object of their hatred and indignation instead of making profit upon such occasions therefore he is often in danger of being utterly ruined and of having his magazines plundered and destroyed by their violence it is in years of scarcity however when prices are high that the corn merchant expects to make his principal profit he is generally in contract with some farmers to furnish him 
for a certain number of years, with a certain quantity of corn, at a certain price. This contract price is settled according to what is supposed to be the moderate and reasonable, that is, the ordinary or average price, which, before the late years of scarcity, was commonly about twenty-eight shillings for the quarter of wheat, and for that of other grain in proportion. In years of scarcity, therefore, the corn merchant buys a great part of his corn for the ordinary price, and sells it for a much higher. That this extraordinary profit, however, is no more than sufficient to put his trade upon a fair level with other trades, and to compensate the many losses which he sustains upon other occasions, both from the perishable nature of the commodity itself, and from the frequent and unforeseen fluctuations of its price, seems evident enough, from this single circumstance, that great fortunes are as seldom made in this as in any other trade. The popular odium, however, which attends it in years of scarcity, the only years in which it can be very profitable, renders people of character and fortune averse to enter into it. It is abandoned to an inferior set of dealers. And millers, bakers, mealmen, and meal factors, together with a number of wretched hucksters, are almost the only middle people that, in the home market, come between the grower and the consumer. The ancient policy of Europe, instead of discountenancing this popular odium against a trade so beneficial to the public, seems, on the contrary, to have authorized and encouraged it. By the fifth and sixth of Edward the sixth, cap fourteen, it was enacted that whoever should buy any corn or grain with intent to sell it again should be reputed an unlawful engrosser and should, for the first fault, suffer two months' imprisonment and forfeit the value of the corn. For the second, suffer six months' imprisonment, and forfeit double the value. And for the third, be set in the pillory, suffer imprisonment during the king's pleasure, and forfeit all his goods and chattels. The ancient policy of most other parts of Europe was no better than that of England. Our ancestors seem to have imagined that the people who would buy their corn cheaper of the farmer than of the corn merchant, who, they were afraid, would require, over and above the price which he paid to the farmer, an exorbitant profit to himself. They endeavored, therefore, to annihilate his trade altogether. They even endeavored to hinder as much as possible any middleman of any kind from coming in between the grower and the consumer, and this was the meaning of the many restraints which they imposed upon the trade of those whom they called kidders, or carriers of corn, a trade which nobody was allowed to exercise without a license, ascertaining his qualifications as a man of probity and fair dealing. The authority of three justices of the peace was, by the statute of Edward the Sixth, necessary in order to grant this license. But even this restraint was afterwards thought insufficient, and, by a statute of Elizabeth, the privilege of granting it was confined to the quarter sessions. The ancient policy of Europe endeavored in this manner to regulate agriculture, the great trade of the country, by maxims quite different from those which it established with regard to manufacturers, the great trade of the towns. By leaving a farmer no other customers but either the consumers or their immediate factors, the kidders and carriers of corn, it endeavored to force him to exercise the trade not only of a farmer but of a corn merchant or corn retailer. On the contrary, it, in many cases, prohibited the manufacturer from exercising the trade of a shopkeeper, or from selling his own goods by retail. It meant, by the one law, to promote the general interest of the country, or to render corn cheap, without perhaps its being well understood how this was to be done. By the other, it meant to promote that of a particular order of men, 
the shopkeepers, who would be so much undersold by the manufacturer, it was supposed, that their trade would be ruined if he was allowed to retail at all. The manufacturer, however, though he had been allowed to keep a shop and to sell his own goods by retail, could not have undersold the common shopkeeper. Whatever part of his capital he might have placed in his shop, he must have withdrawn it from his manufacture. In order to carry on his business on a level with that of other people, as he must have had the profit of a manufacturer on the one part, so he must have had that of a shopkeeper upon the other. Let us suppose, for example, that in the particular town where he lived, ten percent was the ordinary profit both of manufacturing and shopkeeping stock. He must in this case have charged upon every piece of his own goods, which he sold in his shop, a profit of twenty percent. When he carried them from his workhouse to his shop, he must have valued them at the price for which he could have sold them to a dealer or shopkeeper, who would have bought them by wholesale. If he valued them lower, he lost a part of the profit of his manufacturing capital. When, again, he sold them from his shop, unless he got the same price at which a shopkeeper would have sold them, he lost a part of the profit of his shopkeeping capital. Though he might appear, therefore, to make a double profit upon the same piece of goods, yet as these goods made successfully a part of two distinct capitals, he made but a single profit upon the whole capital employed about them, and if he made less than his profit, he was a loser and did not employ his whole capital with the same advantage as the greater part of his neighbors. What the manufacturer was prohibited to do, the farmer was in some measure enjoined to do, to divide his capital between two different employments, to keep one part of it in his granaries and stackyard for supplying the occasional demands of the market, and to employ the other in the cultivation of his land. But as he could not afford to employ the latter for less than the ordinary profits of farming stock, so he could as little afford to employ the former for less than the ordinary profits of mercantile stock. Whether the stock which really carried on the business of a corn merchant belonged to the person who was called a farmer, or to the person who was called a corn merchant, an equal profit was in both cases requisite in order to indemnify its owner for employing it in this manner, in order to put his business on a level with other trades, and in order to hinder him from having an interest to change it as soon as possible for some other. The farmer, therefore, who was thus forced to exercise the trade of a corn merchant, could not afford to sell his corn cheaper than any other corn merchant would have been obliged to do in the case of a free competition. The dealer who can employ his whole stock in one single branch of business has an advantage of the same kind with the workman who can employ his whole labor in one single operation. As the latter acquires a dexterity which enables him, with the same two hands, to perform a much greater quantity of work, so the former acquires so easy and ready a method of transacting his business, of buying and disposing of his goods, that with the same capital he can transact a much greater quantity of business. As the one can commonly afford his work a good deal cheaper, so the other can commonly afford his goods somewhat cheaper than if his stock and attention were both employed about a greater variety of objects. The greater part of manufacturers could not afford to retail their own goods so cheap as a vigilant and active shopkeeper, whose sole business it was to buy them by wholesale and to retail them again. The greater part of farmers could still less afford to retail their own corn to supply the inhabitants of a town at perhaps four or five miles distance from the greater part of them, so cheap as a vigilant and active corn merchant, whose sole business it was to purchase corn by wholesale, to collect it into a great magazine, and to retail it again.
the law which prohibited the manufacturer from exercising the trade of a shopkeeper endeavored to force this division in the employment of stock to go on faster than it might otherwise have done the law which obliged the farmer to exercise the trade of a corn merchant endeavored to hinder it from going on so fast both laws were evident violations of natural liberty and therefore unjust and they were both too as impolitic as they were unjust it is the interest of every society that things of this kind should never either be forced or obstructed the man who employs either his labor or his stock in a greater variety of ways than his situation renders necessary can never hurt his neighbor by underselling him he may hurt himself and he generally does so jack of all trades will never be rich says the proverb but the law ought always to trust people with the care of their own interest as in their local situations they must generally be able to judge better of it than the legislature can do the law however which obliged the farmer to exercise the trade of a corn merchant was by far the most pernicious of the two it obstructed not only that division in the employment of stock which is so advantageous to every society but it obstructed likewise the improvement and cultivation of the land by obliging the farmer to carry on two trades instead of one it forced him to divide his capital into two parts of which one only could be employed in cultivation but if he had been at liberty to sell his whole crop to a corn merchant as fast as he could thresh it out his whole capital might have returned immediately to the land and have been employed in buying more cattle and hiring more servants in order to improve and cultivate it better but by being obliged to sell his corn by retail he was obliged to keep a great part of his capital in granaries and stackyard through the year and could not therefore cultivate so well as with the same capital he might otherwise have done this law therefore necessarily obstructed the improvement of the land and instead of tending to render corn cheaper must have tended to render it scarcer and therefore dearer than it otherwise would have been after the business of the farmer that of the corn merchant is in reality the trade which if properly protected and encouraged would contribute the most to the raising of corn it would support the trade of the farmer in the same manner as the trade of the wholesale dealer supports that of the manufacturer the wholesale dealer by affording a ready market to the manufacturer by taking his goods off his hand as fast as he can make them and by sometimes even advancing their price to him before he has made them enables him to keep his whole capital and sometimes even more than his whole capital constantly employed in manufacturing and consequently to manufacture a much greater quantity of goods than if he was obliged to dispose of them himself to the immediate consumers or even to the retailers as the capital of the wholesale merchant too is generally sufficient to replace that of many manufacturers this intercourse between him and them interests the owner of a large capital to support the owners of a great number of small ones and to assist them in those losses and misfortunes which might otherwise prove ruinous to them an intercourse of the same kind universally established between the farmers and the corn merchants would be attended with effects equally beneficial to the farmers they would be enabled to keep their whole capitals and even more than their whole capitals constantly employed in cultivation in case of any of those accidents to which no trade is more liable than theirs they would find in their ordinary customer the wealthy corn merchant a person who had both an interest to support them and the ability to do it and they would not as at present be entirely dependent upon the forbearance of their landlord or the mercy of his steward 
were it possible as perhaps it is not to establish this intercourse universally and all at once were it possible to turn all at once the whole farming stock of the kingdom to its proper business the cultivation of land withdrawing it from every other employment into which any part of it may be at present diverted and were it possible in order to support and assist upon occasion the operations of this great stock to provide all at once another stock almost equally great it is not perhaps very easy to imagine how great how extensive and how sudden would be the improvement which this change of circumstances would alone produce upon the whole face of the country the statute of edward the sixth therefore by prohibiting as much as possible any middleman from coming in between the grower and the consumer endeavoured to annihilate a trade of which the free exercise is not only the best palliative of the inconveniencies of a dearth but the best preventative of that calamity after the trade of the farmer no trade contributing so much to the growing of corn as that of the corn merchant the rigor of this law was afterwards softened by several subsequent statutes which successively permitted the engrossing of corn when the price of wheat should not exceed twenty shillings and twenty-four shillings thirty-two shillings and forty shillings the quarter at last by the fifteenth of charles the second c seven the engrossing or buying of corn in order to sell it again as long as the price of wheat did not exceed forty-eight shillings the quarter and that of other grain in proportion was declared lawful to all persons not being forestallers that is not selling again in the same market within three months all the freedom which the trade of the inland corn dealer has ever yet enjoyed was bestowed upon it by this statute the statute of the twelfth of the present king which repeals almost all the other ancient laws against engrossers and forestallers does not repeal the restrictions of this particular statute which therefore still continue in force this statute however authorizes in some measure two very absurd popular prejudices first it supposes that when the price of wheat has risen so high as forty-eight shillings the quarter and that of other grain in proportion corn is likely to be so engrossed as to hurt the people but from what has already been said it seems evident enough that corn can at no price be so engrossed by the inland dealers as to hurt the people and forty-eight shillings the quarter besides though it may be considered as a very high price yet in years of scarcity it is a price which frequently takes place immediately after harvest when scarce any part of the new crop can be sold off and when it is impossible even for ignorance to suppose that any part of it can be so engrossed as to hurt the people secondly it supposes that there is a certain price at which corn is likely to be forestalled that is bought up in order to be sold again soon after in the same market so as to hurt the people but if a merchant ever buys up corn either going to a particular market or in a particular market in order to sell it again soon after in the same market it must be because he judges that the market cannot be so liberally supplied through the whole season as upon that particular occasion and that the price therefore must soon rise if he judges wrong in this and if the price does not rise he not only loses the whole profit of the stock which he employs in this manner but a part of the stock itself by the expense and loss which necessarily attend the storing and keeping of corn he hurts himself therefore much more essentially than he can hurt even the particular people whom he may hinder from supplying themselves upon that particular market-day because they may afterwards supply themselves just as cheap upon any other market-day if he judges right 
instead of hurting the great body of the people, he renders them a most important service. By making them feel the inconveniencies of a dearth somewhat earlier than they otherwise might do, he prevents their feeling them afterwards so severely as they certainly would do, if the cheapness of price encouraged them to consume faster than suited the real scarcity of the season. When the scarcity is real, the best thing that can be done for the people is to divide the inconvenience of it as equally as possible through all the different months and weeks and days of the year. The interest of the corn merchant makes him study to do this as exactly as he can, and as no other person can have either the same interest, or the same knowledge, or the same abilities to do it so exactly as he, this most important operation of commerce ought to be trusted entirely to him. Or, in other words, the corn trade, so far at least as concerns the supply of the home market, ought to be left perfectly free. The popular fear of engrossing and forestalling may be compared to the popular terrors and suspicions of witchcraft. The unfortunate wretches accused of this latter crime were not more innocent of the misfortunes imputed to them than those who have been accused of the former. The law which put an end to all prosecutions against witchcraft, which put it out of any man's power to gratify his own malice by accusing his neighbor of that imaginary crime, seems effectually to have put an end to those fears and suspicions, by taking away the great cause which encouraged and supported them. The law which would restore entire freedom to the inland trade of corn would probably prove as effectual to put an end to the popular fears of engrossing and forestalling. The 15th of Charles II, C7, however, with all its imperfections, has perhaps contributed more both to the plentiful supply of the home market and to the increase of tillage than any other law in the statute book. It is from this law that the inland corn trade has derived all the liberty and protection which it has ever yet enjoyed, and both the supply of the home market and the interest of tillage are much more effectually promoted by the inland than either by the importation or exportation trade. The proportion of the average quantity of all sorts of grain imported into Great Britain to that of all sorts of grain consumed, it has been computed by the author of The Tracks Upon the Corn Trade, does not exceed that of one to five hundred and seventy. For supplying the home market, therefore, the importance of the inland trade must be to that of the importation trade as five hundred and seventy to one. The average quantity of all sorts of grain exported from Great Britain does not, according to the same author, exceed the one-and-thirtieth part of the annual produce. For the encouragement of tillage, therefore, by providing a market for the home produce, the importance of the inland trade must be to that of the exportation trade as thirty to one. I have no great faith in political arithmetic, and I mean not to warrant the exactness of either of these computations. I mention them only in order to show of how much less consequence, in the opinion of the most judicious and experienced persons, the foreign trade of corn is than the home trade. The great cheapness of corn in the years immediately preceding the establishment of the bounty may, perhaps with reason, be ascribed in some measure to the operation of this statute of Charles II, which had been enacted about five and twenty years before, and which had, therefore, full time to produce its effect. A very few words will sufficiently explain all that I have to say concerning the other three branches of the corn trade. End of Book 4, Chapter 5, Part C Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Good Streaming at SaulGood.org.
Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to solgood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. Elevate your productivity and relaxation with solgoodbooks.com. For $10 a month, access an exclusive selection of ad-free audiobooks. Perfect for listening during a break or commute. Enhance your listening experience at solgoodbooks.com.